See, the enemy will say, you can't do that. Keep it to yourself. And what we're often doing is we're quenching, we're bottlenecking, we're strangling the power because we're trying to do this on our own in isolation. And right here, God's word says, let him call. Come help. Surround me with prayer. I'm struggling. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. Father, we come before you, and your word is to be high and lifted up. So, Father, I pray that you would create in each one of us a clean heart, O God. Renew right spirits within each one of us. Lead us in the way everlasting that we would walk in truth and joyfully submit to your word, the treasure that it is. God, I pray that as each one right now is calling out to you, crying out to you, God, I pray that we would just ask you to open us up, oh God. Open us up right now to hear your voice, not the voice of the enemy, not the voice of even self, but the voice of truth. Would you open us up right now, oh God, that each one, myself at the top of the list, that we would yield ourselves to you, to be a living sacrifice, not conform to the world, not fit into its mold, but, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So God, do the work in this time as we cast our cares upon You. Because You care for us. And so, Word of God, speak. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to You and You alone, my rock and my Redeemer. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of King Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Uh, We must lead with the mission in all that we do, that we are here to give glory to God, to be disciples of Jesus, that continually go and make disciples of Jesus. I want to make sure I remind myself and I remind you that discipleship is not a one-time event. We've got to get past that. It's so easy to think that it's a one-time deal. It's not. Discipleship is a lifetime event, if you will. Discipleship is ongoing sanctification that we become more like Christ, and it's an ongoing process. That's why we must always have the passion. Have passion for your salvation. Have passion for your neighbors to come to know Christ. Have passion to be a disciple and get into the Word and to mind the Scriptures, the truth, as you joyfully submit to it. Have a passion for that. Passion will take people far in what they do. When you have a passion for Jesus, when you have a passion for His Word, when you have a passion for prayer, it will take you far as He leads and you follow because passion is what should be the outflow of a life that has truly been surrendered to Christ. Vision, Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, all of that goes into our mission. 
And so I want us to understand as we lead into James 5 today that I want to make sure I remind me and I remind you that unless you're living under a rock, we are in a spiritual battle. I can't continue to say this loudly enough or strongly enough that we are in a spiritual battle right now. And please hear my heart on this, church, that this is not the time to retreat. This is not the time to retreat in the spiritual battle. If there's ever a time to begin to charge the beachhead with the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ while the spiritual darts are flying, it is now. You retreat when you're in a battle that you're losing. We're not losing this battle. Matter of fact, I've read the end of the book and we've already won. The battle belongs to the Lord, and so we need to begin to operate from a position of confidence, a position that we're not hoping this works out, I'm not crossing my fingers, not crossing my toes, not wishing that somehow God's going to do something. I know my Redeemer lives, He conquered sin, He conquered death, He conquered the grave, the tomb is forever empty, therefore we have a confidence that cannot be shaken. Therefore, I pray that we'll be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing confidently the labor for Him that you do is never in vain. Don't miss that. It's never in vain. I would rather speak the truth and love of God's Word without apology as I bow to King Jesus than to live in cowardice as I bow to the fear of man. No, God wants us to not surrender. Actually, let me rephrase that. He does want to surrender to Him, but not surrender to the enemy. We have professing believers, I see this week in and week out, that are confused on who to surrender to. We have professing believers who are really pretenders of the faith, to be blunt, as they powerlessly and prayerlessly play church. And God has called us to a much higher calling, a standard that we are to live for Christ. Our lives are no longer our own. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but the Christ that lives within me. And when that is true, when that's real in your life today, that there will now be an outflow of worship, an outflow of as you live your life, that it becomes truly a worshipful experience in everything you do. Not just an add-on benefit. As one person recently said, great suffering is often what leads to the great revival. And have you ever considered, church, that perhaps what's going on in our country is this perhaps is God's desire, God's initiative to try to get our attention? Have you thought about this? Parents, you are responsible for the discipleship of your children. You are responsible for this. And therefore, what you minimize, so will they. Parents, if you, in this war that we're in, as we're leading into our text today, in this war that we're fighting, the spiritual battle, parents, whatever you are minimizing today from a spiritual perspective, often your children will do the same. That's why we need men and women, parents, to rise up and begin to take the discipleship of their own lives and their children seriously. To be people that say, 
I'm going to live for Christ because Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not. So many times it's easy to, to think that, hey, we just go to, to watch. No, it's involvement. It's engagement. It's part of being a true follower of Christ. There is activity in that that you do not for salvation, but from salvation. And so often it gets missed. God's not looking for watchers. He's not looking for whiners. He's looking for worshipers. He's not looking for those who sulk. He's looking for those who are surrendered. God's not looking for onlookers. He's looking for obeyers. And often I have to ask myself, and I pray you do the same, that when I look at my calendar and I look at my checkbook, those two are the great revealers of who I truly worship, who I truly am enslaved to. Again, I know I gave you this quote last week, but as I lead into the text this morning, I want to make sure we hear this clearly from Kuiper when he said, and I quote, the greatest gift a church can receive is to have a group of families who take their responsibilities with such Christian seriousness, here we go, that, remember the so that we talk about all the time? So you have a group of families that take their faith so serious that they are willing to completely alter their lifestyle to raise up disciples for Christ. Did you catch that? It's powerful. That's the tug of war we're in today, that we can somehow raise a hand, say a prayer, do a cartwheel, sign a card, get dunked, still hang on to our lives, supposedly. It's anti-biblical. And we think that in that tug-of-war process that's going on, we're wondering why, wait a minute, why aren't things working out? Why am I in such turmoil? Why is there not a contentment, not a peace that will overflood my soul? Well, so often we see the answer to that. It's simply because we're not willing to alter our lifestyles to Christ we just want to have the fire insurance. That's why we must all ask. It's so important, church. When you look at the Word of God, when I look at the Word of God, we must ask ourselves a question here. What am I feeding my mind with? I mean, think about that for a moment. What are you, what am I feeding our mind with? What we feed our minds with is who we will become. If we're not feeding our minds with truth, we will have a steady intake of nonsense, of falseness, of untruth. What happens when you live in untruth all week long? You begin to become a person that's untruthful, that's walking in the nonsense. But as you mine the Scriptures, a steady diet of the treasures. This is the treasure trove here. There's no greater treasure trove ever then Jesus Christ, through His Word, the Gospel, this is the treasure. And yet so many people, even professing believers, might open a Bible on Sunday, and that's a might. The psalmist tells us, Your Word, Your Word, O God, Your Word, Your truth, I submit to it, I, I get under it, it joyfully to, to follow you for all the days of my life. And as I get under it, what happens here, it, I write it on the tablet of my heart that I might not sin against you. Do, you. do you see what happens? That when we're under the guardrails of Scripture, it becomes to be the, the, the buffer, the fortress, the, the mighty fortress that is our God. And you say, what's that have to do with, with James? 
Well, look in your Bible. I think it has everything to do with James because as we're looking at this text today, it's a difficult one. But I want to make sure we remember as we launch into this text a, a launch point verse. I want you to write this down in your notes. A launch point verse. 2 Corinthians 10. Write this down, 3 through 4. I want to make sure we remember the power of the salvation, the power of the gospel, the power of Scripture. Here's what Paul writes to that church in Corinth as we launch into James. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, so it means this, though we live in the flesh, we're living in the flesh today, we are not, church, don't miss this, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, pause for a moment here as we launch into this great text in James. Right here, Paul says, even though we're walking, living in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Your enemy in your home that you think your enemy is not really that person. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual, spiritual battle. That person at work who you think is your enemy is really not your enemy. This is a spiritual battle. On and on we could go. What does the text say in verse 4? For the weapons of our warfare, okay, we're in a battle. There's a battle going on here. A war are not of the flesh. Are you catching this? But have divine power, I love this, to destroy what? Strongholds. Did you catch that? So our weapons that we're fighting with, this warfare, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Church, we must, literally, we must expose the evil and also oppose the evil. We have the weapons of the warfare of the gospel of Jesus Christ that as we pray, and we're going to see that today, as we become men and women and students and children of prayer, a praying church that we go to prayer first, not last. This is not a last resort. Hey, I've tried everything else. Let me try calling God and see what he thinks. No, we run to God first. You've heard my plea before, and I'll say it again today. My prayer is that this church will become such a prayer warrior church where everyone's involved, and we are praying, and the place begins to shake. The foundations of this church begin to shake for the glory of God. I pray we become a church of prayer, and when there is a crisis in our community, my prayer is this, that after the people at the crisis call the EMS and all the workers to come out and help, I pray the second call they make is to Enon Baptist Church. And they call and they say, look, we know that when you guys pray, mountains get moved. That's my prayer, because I believe that's part of the revival, that when you get people of all ages learning what it means to pray, involved, engaged in prayer, not on the sidelines, but I'm talking engaged in prayer, engaged in the battle. It's one of our weapons. We have the sword of the Spirit. It's our offensive weapon. Yes, we do battle with the Word. When Satan comes at you and his lies and his fiery darts, you just open up the Scriptures. You open up the Word of God and you hit him with the Word. Every time he speaks nonsense into your life, you take truth. You take truth and you speak truth into your life. Replace the nonsense with truth. As Jesus 
Jesus told Satan there when he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus didn't say, hey, let me consult my attorney. He didn't say, let me consult my psychologist. He said, it is written. There is something about the Word of God. And I pray we'll be people of prayer and of the Word. So you know our theme, we're all in for God's glory. What does it mean? Total commitment. We've been talking about this. And so here we are. Here we are in James chapter 5, 14 and 15, the power of prayer. Let me ask you a question as we lead into that. Do you have a prayer life that's powerful? Like answer honestly, think through that for just a moment. Do you have a prayer life that's powerful? I think so many people are even professed believers, to be blunt, are oftentimes giddily just running around. Just giddily running around. Spiritually blindfolded. No idea what's really going on. No idea there's even a war. And they're fighting their spiritual battles with empty squirt guns. One of the greatest weapons, as we're going to see here today, is the power of prayer. And so here's what James 5 says, verse 14, as we read the Word of God, the powerful, inspired Word of God. Verse 14 of James 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So that's verse 14. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is very interesting. I've been studying this all week long, and I've referenced so many different scholars, and you'd be blown away on scholars that you know by name who are at opposite ends of the spectrum on what this word sick really means. Because we're going to see here in a moment from the original Greek that it's used in different ways throughout the New Testament. And so my prayer is this, out of the gate, that, that we would see very clearly by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I pray, what He wants us to learn. I pray we'll see very clearly in context what He wants us to learn. But always go back to context. And so look in your Bible from last week, James 5.13. And this is important. So he asks a question in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? So I'm sure right now there's a lot of hands going up. What are you to do? I mean, what are you to do? Well, let him pray. There's a second question he asked in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? What are you to do? Let him sing praise. So remember this, church. My and your personal prayer life our personal praise life will help steer and drive our corporate prayer life and our corporate praise life. When you and I, Monday through Saturday, are getting the furnace stoked, and it is hot, red hot coals of prayer, red hot coals of singing praise and worship, what do you think is going to happen when we gather together on a Sunday morning? The outflow will be what happened Monday through Saturday, and that's often the problem we see in the American church. There's so little, so many times going on regarding spirituality of God things throughout the week, 
And then we scratch our heads and wonder why things aren't exploding in a good way on Sunday morning. It makes perfect sense. When we run into God's presence all the week long, Sunday morning is not a time that we got to psych ourselves up and get pepped up. No, it's just now a crescendo to what's been happening all week long. Well, that's so important when you look at verse 13. Because when we pray together, think about this. When we pray together, we stay together. Think about that. When we pray together, we stay together. There's something bonding, uniting when people begin to pray. There's a humility, a contrition, a transparency, a vulnerability that unites people together. It's not surface level anymore. We begin to pray in one accord. When we sing Think about that. We sing songs together. Our hearts are united as one. It's an anthem that we sing. Well, let's tackle verse 14 together. Here it is of James 5. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here's this word sick. So the question we want to ask, because Often when we think of the word sick, I think of, you know, you have a cold, you have the sniffles, there's some sort of sickness going on, and that would be a true definition. The question is, is this what James is trying to communicate here? Well, think about this. So in this context, James is saying to call the elders, the church leaders, to pray for this person. So is it for sickness? Is it for physical healing? Well, if so, now don't miss this. So if that is the argument from this text, I want you to think about something. If this is the argument, James is completely pivoting from all of James. You go back to James 1, 2, and 4, and what does it say? Count it all joy, my brothers. When you what? You guys know this verse. When you encounter trials of many kinds, right? One of our favorite verses, right? Count it all joy when you're under persecution, when you're suffering. Who wants to really do that? And he talks about this suffering, this persecution all through James, and then all of a sudden we see this word that we translate here in the English to sick. There's only two times in James that he uses this. It's in these two verses. So the question is this, is James pivoting? Is he actually talking about physical sickness? That's a question we need to address here. It's interesting when you look at that Greek word there that you see it's used for sickness in some cases throughout the New Testament, but also it's used for this, for a spiritual weakness. Spiritual weakness. There's a feebleness, if you will, there being powerless, lacking strength, just not physically in some instances, but we could argue spiritually as well. So perhaps the suffering here, perhaps, is from the evil mistreatment that he's been talking about these previous chapters. Remember, Jewish believers are the audience. We apply it to our lives today, but they're going through persecution. They're being mistreated. Perhaps they're suffering physically from the mistreatment. There's a lot of questions we can answer here, and our aim at this church is we want to have biblical fidelity to the Scripture of God's Word. That's our aim here. We want to be truthful and honoring His Word. Now, from time to time, you come across some verses like this that can be hard to translate. 
But I pray in the midst of this that we will ask the Holy Spirit, number one, reveal, illuminate, so that we see clearly what James's intent is here. Now, I believe we're going to be able to make an argument on the back end of this for both cases, and I'll explain that here in a moment. But we have to ask, what is James getting at here? Think through that thought for a moment. As you're pondering that, let's just look at the rest of that verse 14. So, as they're sick, is it physical sickness or spiritual sickness, if you will? What are you to do? Well, here's what the text says. Let him call, let him invite, it literally means to come alongside, let him call, invite for the elders of the church to come. Elders is a very interesting word there. It often is interchangeable with pastors, overseers, shepherds. Here's the key on this. It's in the plural. Not singular, it's in the plural. Don't don't miss that for a moment. So, If James is saying, look, you are spiritually weak right now because you're under heavy persecution, you're under heavy trials, think about that as you paint the picture in your mind's eye right now. What is that going to do when you call the leaders of the church, plural, to come to you and they begin to pray for you? Think about the power of prayer. Think about that church. Think about the power of prayer in this instance. They're to pray over him to make supplications, to worship through prayer. Don't miss that. Prayer is an act of worship. And don't miss this final thought here on that key point. Prayer is the emphasis here. Don't miss that. Prayer is the emphasis. I know in that next phrase it says, anointing Him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so often you got the health, wealth, prosperity movement that says, see, here's what you do. Here's a bulletproof, supposedly text that if you pray in faith and you anoint people with oil, they're going to be healed of every disease and sickness. That's what they will argue. Well, that's ludicrous. Even Paul, as you look back in his life and all that he went through, we could argue he was the most faithful of the faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. And that he endured so much physically. On and on we could go. But what is this oil? Well, the anointing oil you can look at back in the ancient times, they would use olive oil, and many times they would use it for a medicinal purpose. That's a valid argument. Often they would also use it to help heal wounds. But do you understand this? It's also representative, symbolic for the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't miss that. So as we're trying to piece this puzzle together to be faithful to the fidelity of the Word, the truth of the Word, we want to make sure that we're understanding that the prayer here is the focus. It's it's an internal act, if you will. The prayer is internal, right? It's, It's internal as we pray, as we unite in prayer. It's something internal that's going on to the Lord. The anointing of the oil is on the external, the outside. It's secondary. Don't miss that. The focus, again, is prayer and then anointing. But here's the real key. Look at that last phrase in verse 14. In the name of who? In the name of you, me, your church, your buddy, your parents? No. In the name of who? The Lord. It's so glorious. So you see the object. Remember, the object 
of our worship is the one that we are truly surrendered to. And there it is in the name of the Lord. So let me read this again. Verse 14 of James 5. Is anyone among you sick? Is he talking about physical sickness? Or perhaps a weakness, a feebleness, a being powerless because the persecution, the suffering has become so intense. And some of you are there that you're going through such physical sickness that you could argue that, that, man, I am weary. I am wrung out. I can't take another step. I am so discouraged. Others can truthfully argue, man, you are under persecution. Your family has come against you. Those at the workplace, they're coming against you because you say, I'm all in for Jesus. I love you, but I love Jesus most. And they are slinging the mud at you, and you are discouraged. What are we to do? We're to pray. But just not singular prayer. Just not isolated prayer, although that's a good thing to pray one to God. Amen? But right here, we're instructed there's something about the power of prayer when it's done corporately, especially when the leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers, when they begin to gather around, there prayerfully will be power in that prayer. It's under the authority of the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Under the authority, the submission to, the name that's above every name. That at that name, the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's under His name and His name only. That's why key number one, I want you to write this down. Key number one, here it is, write it down. It says this, when I am weary due to suffering, I should ask my church leaders to pray for me. Key number one. When I am weary due to suffering, I should ask my church leaders to pray for me. I intentionally put the word suffering in there. Suffering could be a physical sickness, but it can also be the weary discouragement from persecution. And whether you're physically sick or whether you're weary from persecution, my vision, my plea, my prayer is that we begin to unite our church leaders to mobilize, to be praying for the people as they call. Did you notice that? Let them call them. Get a hold of them. Reach out to them. Initiate. Hey, I'm suffering. There's something beautiful about this. I want to explain this here in just a moment. But when you initiate, when I initiate that I'm in pain, when you initiate that, hey, I initiate, man, we're suffering. This is difficult. I don't know how to do this anymore. I can't take this. What are you and I doing? Well, there's a great sense of humility, isn't there? There's a risk there, human speaking, being transparent, being vulnerable. Both are risky. But what about the reward? See, the enemy will say you can't do that. Keep it to yourself. And what we're often doing is we're quenching We're bottlenecking, we're strangling the power because we're trying to do this on our own in isolation. And right here, God's Word says, let Him call. Come help. Surround me with prayer. I'm struggling. That's what it does for me and you, the person. 
as this plurality of leaders. Very important. Plurality of leaders begins to pray, unite together. And what does it do for you, me? It teaches us humility, contrition, brokenness. But what does it do for the church leaders, those plurality of leaders? What does it do? Well, it helps them be ready. They never know when they're going to get the call. Like the firemen, right? You don't know when you're going to get the call. And as those leaders are ready to go assist, it now unites them together as a team to go forth to pray over the needs of those in the body. Do you see how beautifully this works? And it often takes that humility by one person to say, I'm struggling. I don't know how I'm going to make it through the day, let alone the week. Please help me through prayer. And you got a group of men who say, you know what, we're going to come alongside you as your elders, your pastors, your shepherds, your overseers, and we're going to surround you with the power of prayer. Now, I want to make a note here. If you are one of those, and there are these people out there, who there is much suffering going on at home, at the business, on the ball team, and even at the church. And the reality in some cases, as the people who are claiming their suffering are actually the ones who are, are initiating the suffering. In other words, they're good manipulators. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. If that's you... You don't need the church elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers to pray for your suffering. You need those men to come pray for your repentance. It is so key. I'm just telling you, this is how this works. The enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. He loves to plant his operatives inside the home and the ball team and the business and the church to sow discord. If you're the one that your family is in shambles, if you're the one that your family is broken apart and being destroyed, and then you finally have the courage to look in the mirror and stop blaming everybody else and start taking ownership, that's when the healing can begin. But until that point, it, it won't happen. So we think about repentance in this vein. That's why J.I. Packer, as I appeal to you, he said it like this, repentance as we know is basically not moaning and remorse, but it's turning and change. But turning and change. Did you catch that? But it's so easy to play the game and say, hey, you know what? I'm good. What do I have to apologize for? What do I have to repent from? And even as you say that, there's a boastfulness, a proudness there that, that God hates. It's wicked to Him. He despises. It's disgusting. He's going to have His hand against you, and He's going to oppose you and say, you're not going to get near me as you continue to walk in pride and not humility. See, if you are truly on the receiving end of persecution, weakness and you're feeble, or sickness perhaps, don't don't, don't suffer alone in silence. Don't do it. The enemy loves to isolate. 
He loves it when you and I are alone. He begins to plant the seeds in our head in the battlefield of the mind. The war is going on there. And when we're alone, we're weak. We need a brother. We need a sister that will come alongside of you, men and women, that will stand with you. In this instance, we need the elders, the plurality of the leadership to come alongside and say, we're standing with you in the battle as you are truly suffering, not manipulating. It's so key. I want me to write down 2 Corinthians 12. Write this down, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Powerful verse here about this weakness that Paul even went through. He says this, for the sake of Christ. Don't miss that. Then I am content with what? With weakness. Same word, right there it is used, that same Greek word. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, church, then I am strong. Did you catch this? This is so beautiful. Let me read this again. Look on the front end. Do you see the why? Do you see the object of the goal and the aim there? For the sake of who? Christ. See, when Christ is our treasure, when He's our aim, everything now, the responses to Him, the responses to our circumstances are going to be an outflow of when He's our object, when He's our treasure, when He's our hope, when He's our identity, when He's our security, everything is an outflow. What's the outflow here? Well, Paul says, then, because for the sake of Christ, then I am content. Okay, on the surface, that seems, okay, we can deal with that. That's not a real big deal. Christ's contentment. Sounds good. Put it on a t-shirt, coffee mug. Awesome, right? What's Paul content with, though? Here's the list. Weaknesses, hardships, persecutions, and even calamities. You pause there and go, has Paul lost his mind? Like, what is going on here? Is he cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? What is going on in Paul's world? And then he makes this declaration. For when I am weak, then I'm actually strong. How? Why? Because when he's weak, it's all for the sake of Christ. And when we're weak in Christ, we know he's our strength. He's our source. He's our stability. He's our anchor. He's our hope. And in the midst of that trial, we can be strong. It's powerful when you think about it. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. So when you are suffering and weak, why do you think, in addition to our previous thoughts here, that James is instructing the elders, again plural, 
of the church to pray for you. Let me ask it this way, a little more emphasis. So when you are weak spiritually and or if you are weak from a sickness, why do you think, why do you think here that James, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is instructing for you to go to the elders, the church leaders? Why? I think the answer is obvious. When you write down Acts 6-4, see, the men, the elders, the leaders, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers are to be men of prayer. They're to be men of the Word, men that are full of the Holy Spirit, not spiritual chumps, not put in that office because they're good-looking, not put in that office because they have a big resume, not put in that office because they have a bunch of degrees, more degrees than a thermometer. Uh, That's not why they're in that office. When you look at the biblical qualifications of what it means to be a pastor, you come out of those qualifications there as Paul is imploring there to Timothy and also there to Titus. You see very, very clearly that it's all about the character of the man. Uh, You can learn a lot. And you can dress up a lot, but the character of the man will be revealed. It's impossible to keep a charade going long term, because time is the great exposure of who we all really are. These are to be men that are full of faith. And what does Acts 6-4 say? Well, here it is, but we will devote ourselves, there's the leaders of the church as they're selecting these deacons, And we know Stephen selected there, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. But the leaders of the church are saying, here are our primary two aims. We're going to focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. I think so many times people have no clue what the biblical role of a pastor really is. Does a pastor do more than that? Sure. Amen. Amen. But those two primary things must be primary. You go, why? Well, think about this. If you're going to gather a bunch of pastors around to pray over someone, and they themselves are spiritual chumps and they don't pray, what kind of power is going to be in that prayer? There is something about that when God's men, those pastors, begin to pray, and they're praying all week long, they are pounding on the door of heaven. They are asking God to do a work only He can do. They are humbling themselves. They are saying, God, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and then Help me to repent so that you'll cause me to walk in the way everlasting. And you get pastors doing that. You get pastors who are not waiting until Saturday night at 1022 to start opening the Bible going, oh no, I got a sermon to preach. What do I do? But they're in it all week long. They are mining the scriptures. They are spending hours upon hours studying and praying and researching. What do you think is going to happen on Sunday morning? Man, when the furnace gets hot all week long through prayer and the Word, it's going to burst forth with a power that can only be through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as that vessel has submitted Himself to God and His glory all week long. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. I want us now to 
Think about our last verse, verse 15. And just think about that. So the more that I'm transformed as a pastor, prayerfully the more that you and our church will be. Often a church spiritually only goes as far as their pastors do. And I pray in our case that we would go far as prayerfully I will be a man of prayer and of the Word and seek His fame for His glory and His renown. Verse 15, James 5 says it like this. It goes deeper now about this sickness. And the prayer of faith will do what? Well, will save. Uh-oh, now we've got another question. We'll save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, let's go back to this whole train of thought here. So, again, just to recap, James has not talked about physical sickness in that word until now. He's been talking about suffering from persecution all throughout James. So, is he pivoting is the question. Is he pivoting away from this theme, this context? And all of a sudden, just saying, hey, if you got the sniffles, here's what you do. Is that what he's saying? And then he throws in this prayer of faith will save. Okay, now we're really confused. The one who's sick. So we just pray for people, we have faith, and they're going to get saved. Perhaps salvation-wise is one argument. The other is, this is the perfect example people will say of, look, if you pray by faith, this person's going to get healed, period. Well, if that's the case... I know a lot of godly people who must have not had a whole lot of faith because those prayers did not get answered how they desired. Hopefully you'll hear me say that comment and you'll realize where we're going with this. And the Lord will do what? The text says, will raise him up. And then all of a sudden, James throws in this phrase, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So people read these two verses, 14 and 15, and it's, often misconstrued, and there is great debate on this, but, but think about this. I mean, just think about this. The prayer of faith will do what? Any kind of prayer? No, of faith. Wait a minute, is it a prayer of anointing oil? No, it's a prayer of faith. There's something about the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith by who? Go back to the context. By anyone? No. In this context, specifically this context, it's the prayer of faith by the plurality of the elders. People will argue, I've heard this over the years, well, I don't think eldership is a biblical model, to which I often retort, so you don't believe in the Bible. It's very clear. I could show you passage after passage where we are commanded to raise up elders, a plurality of overseers, of pastors, of overseers, that is the shepherds that help the church, that guide, that take the church under their wing, not to be uh, powerful, uh, not to dull and fill a void they never had met as a child, and now they finally are in a position where they can domineer. It's actually just the opposite. It's, it's an act of service where we go, hey, I'm taking this seriously because I'm going to be held to a higher standard. And again, it's not based on worldly credentials. So many times I've seen that. And the churches that have done that are a complete train wreck. It's all about the character of the man. All about the character. Is he humble? 
Does it exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? So you think through this prayer of faith. It will do what? It will save. Well, again, so is this a spiritual salvation saving? Well, here's what it means. It means to restore, and we use this word a lot. It means to rescue. We'll use it in that context that, hey, I got saved, I got rescued. But is that what James is getting at here, to deliver? Well, let's keep looking. So the one who is sick. Now, very interesting. So in verse 14, there's a Greek word for that sick. And now in verse 15, it's a different Greek word. It's a different Greek word. And when you look at that here, it means this. In that Greek word that's used here, it means to grow weary. It doesn't mean physical sickness. It actually means to grow weary. I'm going to give you an example here in a moment of a verse where it shows this. So perhaps the one who's sick has a weak faith. Man, they're suffering. Remember the context. They're persecuted. Man, if people are telling you that you're crazy and they're abandoning you, man, after a while, that wears on you. I don't care who you think you are. That's going to wear on you. And perhaps they're actually being beaten. Maybe they're like the persecuted church today where these people are being beaten. They're literally being beaten for their faith. They're being whipped and lashed. And what do they do in those instances? Well, here's what they do often. They will put oil on the wounds. Yes, they do this. Just think through this as the Holy Spirit, I pray, is speaking to you about what this means. So again, please hear my heart on this. If you turn on the doodah channel with one of those televangelists that says, you know, send me your war seed so I can live in my million-dollar mansion, and I'll send you some anointing oil or a handkerchief or whatever other nonsense they're doing, this is not health, wealth, prosperity gospel, verse 15. Don't buy that lie. What will the Lord do? Well, the Lord will raise them up. It means to awaken, to rouse. So do we know when? This is the question. Do we know when? Look at your verse there in 15. Do we know when the person will be delivered, restored? No. I mean, think about this. It just says they'll be restored. Well, does it mean then? Perhaps. God can do that, amen? God can do anything He wants. And I believe God does that at times. I've seen God do miracles. But again, I've seen godly, faithful people just pray. And I'm talking pray like they've never prayed before. And sometimes God says, look, this is not my plan. This is not my will. I'm going to heal that person on the other side. You're praying for their healing. Oh, they're getting healed. Uh, they're going to come into my presence and they're going to be made whole. And often we think because God doesn't answer according to how we want it, Somehow, is, God is not the God who we think He should be, because He might heal wounds that are of a physical nature in this life, or He might heal them in the next. They could be wounds that are from a spiritual persecution and the faith is weak. And I know there's been many, I'm thinking right now, even Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of my heroes of the faith who suffered so deeply just deep depression. And on this side of heaven, to my knowledge, he was never healed. But I know this, on that day, on that day, when he stepped into the presence of Jesus, he was fully, fully made 
like Him. We must remember that, church. God's timing is never early, it's never late, it's always right on time. And sometimes He goes our way, and sometimes He doesn't. The real question is, when He doesn't go your way or my way, will we still go His way? That's the real question. When His no is not what we wanted to hear, when we're demanding God say yes, say yes, and God graciously with great tender pity, as we learned before, tender compassion and pity, just graciously says no. Will we still go His way even though He's not going our way? Well, then James throws this wrench into the pile and he says this, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Huh. Committed sins to perform, to carry out committing the sin. Sin is what? Missing God's mark. God's holy. Sin is against God, against His plan. We, we think we're God is what we do and we take things into our own hands and begin to live our life as we want. We're missing, we're missing His mark. And then what's it say? Well, He will be forgiven. He will be pardoned. It means to let go and to literally in that context as you're looking in your Bible to give up a debt. You know, as a side note, maybe there's someone today that you need to pardon. Maybe there's someone right now in your home that you need to forgive the debt. Maybe there's someone at work or even in your church that you need to pardon and forgive the debt and say, you know what, I'm not going to allow unforgiveness and bitterness to no longer have a grip on me and I'm no longer going to live in this prison that's been self-imposed by me as I'm trying to get back at the other person, but in reality, I'm only hurting myself and in the end, hurting everyone. Well, here's what James says, he will be forgiven. So maybe we could say it like this. Any sin that is the underlying cause, I made a note of, the root cause for the weak, the feebleness, even yes, the sickness, will be forgiven when it's confessed. Isn't that awesome? I mean, aren't you so glad, aren't you so glad, church, that 1 John 1 9 rings true? Aren't you so glad? That if we confess our sins, think about this church, if we confess our sins, it means to say the same thing, to agree. So we're no longer blame shifting, we're no longer running, we're no longer cowering. No, we get out in the open and say, God, here's my sin. Like in all of its ugliness, God, here's my sin. Just see it for what it is. And if we confess it, here's what He does. He is faithful and just to forgive, to pardon, to take the debt and to cast it as far as the east as to the west, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It is well with our soul. But then 1 John 1 9 goes one step further. As we confess it and get real and honest and open and say, I'm the one that's destroying my family. I'm the one. It's me. Can't blame everybody else anymore. I've been doing this for years. And there's a toxic trail of poison I've left of one damaged relationship after another. No, it's me. I'm going to own it. I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm going to just 
do what I need to do to kill and mortify the sin in my life. I'm not going to blame anyone else. I'm not going to say, hey, I can't be perfect. No, I'm going to own it. And what God does is He says, I'm going to pardon you, and then I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to purify you from all unrighteousness. Man, for the true believer today, that's good news. That's incredible news. Well, that's why key number two, our last key, here it is. Write it down. Key number two that I pray will go along with this whole thought process. Key number two, here it is. Seeking my church leaders to intercede for me through faithful prayer during the times of suffering will encourage me as I confess my sin and count the cost of following Jesus. Let me say key number two again. Write it down. Here it is. Seeking my church leaders to intercede for me. Don't miss that. Through what? Faithful prayer during the times of suffering. Could be persecution. Could be physical sickness. Will encourage me as I confess my sin and count the cost of following Jesus. I love the word encourage because it means this, to infuse courage into. Again, when you humble yourself and you say, you know what, I need some help. I need some prayer. And maybe, you know what, maybe you do need the church leaders to come pray over you for your repentance. Like maybe that's what you really need. You're at the point in your life that you're looking in the mirror and you're realizing the more that you live for self, the less people are around you. And you're finally having the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to do what should have been done years ago and I'm going to repent. Well, maybe you do. And I know we would be more than happy to come alongside you to pray in that vein as you have a humble heart. But there's courage that's being infused when we're encouraged. It stiffens our spines. We have a spine that's no longer a wet noodle, but now it's spiritual titanium that we know our Redeemer lives and we know that since He's for us, who can be against us? We know that greater is He that's within us than he that's in the world. We know very clearly, very clearly that our God is the mighty fortress and we don't fear man, but we know the Lord is on our side. Whom shall we fear? On and on we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. We wait on Him. We're of good courage. Wait on the Lord. We know as we wait on Him, we know it's work to the flesh. We know that. We know also it's worship in the process. We're worshiping God as we're waiting on Him. We also know this, that in the end, it's going to be worth it. And if we do not lose heart. So what's the connection, church? What is this connection here between someone who is weary from suffering even perhaps physical, could be spiritual, and the prayer of faith, and the sin being committed, and being forgiven. But what's the connection here? If, if James is continuing this thought from James 1, 2 through 4 
to count it all joy of the trials and the suffering from the persecution. And we see that woven all the way through. Now we see a word of sickness. Is he pivoting is the first question. But if we keep with the context, we would answer no. And we would say this is a spiritual weakness going on. Now, let me pause. Does that mean we don't pray for physical sickness? And the answer is a resounding, of course we do. I'm talking from a context here. Just in this instance, as we want to make sure context is king, and we wrestle with this and we grapple with it, do we pray for people that are sick? And the answer is amen, amen, hallelujah. But in this context, we got to remember the context of the Scriptures, and we got to ask ourselves another question, and it goes something like this. What is the point of prayer? What is the point of prayer? I mean, is the point of prayer, church, where God is, again, kind of this genie in the bottle, this divine butler, this cosmic Santa Claus, this spiritual vending machine, He's in our back pocket, we get in a jam, we haven't consulted Him at all on the front end, now we're wondering why we're in such a mess on the back end, but we got Him in our back pocket. We got him in our back pocket that, you know what, we're in a jam, last resort, hey, can you help me, God? And then we somehow think often that, poof, he's going to not only take care of the mess, but actually clean up the mess, and supposedly we talk ourselves into that now we're going to go live a Hallmark movie. That's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is that we will have first given our lives to Christ to the true believer in this context, and when we've given Him our lives, everything that we are, we've also given Him our will. We give Him our hopes and our dreams and our desires. And what happens is now the process of life becomes very, very simple. If we're still hanging on to our will and our hopes and our dreams and our desires, there's going to be a tug of war for the rest of your life. But we give this to Him. We just don't walk an aisle. We just don't say, hey, I'm I'm glad I got that over with. Now I can move on to my own life. That's not salvation. That's lunacy. That's a false conversion. It's very clear in the Scripture when Jesus is talking about believing in Him It's intellectual. There is an emotional response, but church, there's always the third component. It's the act of the will where literally you are taking off the old man, the old woman, and now you're putting on Christ. You are becoming clothed, clothed in the righteousness of God Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. The point of prayer is to conform to God's will, not to have Him conform to our will. It's seeking the face of God. It's seeking God's will. It's seeking God to recalibrate us to His plan for His purpose, for His glory. That's the point of prayer. And so often, again, we see this one verse here that's used as a... Well, here it is. Let's supposedly twist this so that we can tell people a truth that is not a truth and is actually heretical. 
God does not always answer how we desire. And does that mean we're out of His will? Could be, but not always. Can sin cause physical sickness? Yes. Does it mean that every person who's sick is sinning? Well, of course, no. We could make the argument that we're under original sin, so technically we're all depraved. That's a true statement. My point is this. Can we say that every person that's sick is living in habitual sin? Well, I don't know people's hearts, but I know this. There are so many in the Scripture as I read the benchmark who suffered greatly, who suffered greatly. And it was so difficult, the road. Look at Jesus, who never sinned. And look at the road He traveled. He was mocked, and He was whipped, and He was beaten. He was executed on a cruel Roman cross, yet without sin. But there are times. I mean, there are times. There are times when we are physically sick, and and maybe we're under God's hand of discipline, His chastening. For those the Lord loves, He chastens. That's actually a good thing. Like right now, if you're living in rebellion and defiance against God, and He is letting you run wild, and there's no conviction, there's no discipline in your life, you got a major problem. You want to be disciplined when you get out of God's path. I need to be disciplined when I get out of His path. That shows He truly loves me. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews. So think about this, speaking of Hebrews. So here's where that other Greek word in verse 15 is used about being weak. And I think this gives us a really good picture of what James is intending. So here it is, Hebrews 12.3. Hebrews 12.3. Consider Him Jesus who endured, who was steadfast, who, who took the bullets, who took the darts and did not bend. From who? Sinners. Such hostility against Himself. So that you, so that me, may not grow, here's the word, weary or faint-hearted. That's the exact Greek word that is used in verse 15 regarding sickness. The exact one. I believe that shows us very clearly the original intent here. I believe that this is speaking of, in this whole context, of of a spiritual sickness, of a spiritual weakness going on. Now again, having said all that, do we still pray for those who are sick? Amen. Amen. But in this context, I believe this is James's point. Now let me give you another illustration though. So we think through the ultimate aim of Scripture, right? I mean, think about that. The ultimate aim of Scripture is not that you and I would be physically healed. Can we be? Yes. Does God do that? Yes. I mean, if this was the case, then we wouldn't die. We all grow, and every second that ticks on the clock, time is the one thing that you can never get back. It's gone, poof, gone. And we all get older, and we all grow older, and we all become weak in the body. And unless the Lord returns, we will exit this life. And yet again, from the health, wealth, prosperity side of things, Isaiah 53.5 gets misquoted 
so many times. I hear this all the time. Well, by His stripes, we are healed. That's a true statement. But do you really even understand the gospel? His stripes, He was whipped and He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. To not heal us physically, but to heal us spiritually. Oh, this is the beautiful point of the gospel, that He came to seek and save those who are lost. Not lost physically, lost spiritually. And so often we just fall into these traps, these potholes. Why? Well, are we in this Monday through Saturday? Are we mining it? Are we investigating? Are we like the Bereans? Are we hungry? Because what we feed our minds with is who we will become. So here's the takeaway question I want to give us here. Takeaway question. Here it is. It's a simple question. Is my heart open to having my church leaders pray for me? Just think about that for a moment. Is your heart open to having your church leaders pray for you? Again, let me go back. So there's at least twofold purposes here, perhaps more, probably more. But when you say, I need prayer, I'm suffering, I'm sick, I'm even the manipulator. I want to repent. When you have a group of leaders come over you, those elders, those shepherds, the pastors, the overseers, there's going to be a great humility in your life, number one. But number two, think about the oneness and the unity that's going to happen amongst those leaders. And now with you and the leaders as the plurality is praying and praying and praying. That's one of my visions for our church. That when we give the time of response at the end of every service, one of my prayers going forward is that there'll be humility in the pews that will say, I need prayer. And you know what happens, I've learned, church, over the years? It usually takes one courageous person, just one, to say, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm hurting. Will you pray for me? And many others tend to follow So here's your action step after that takeaway question. So with a humble heart, that's the key, with a humble heart, I will seek my church leaders to pray for me during times of suffering. With a humble heart, I will seek my church leaders to pray for me during times of suffering. Now, again, don't take a sound bite, so let's make sure we're clear on this. Is prayer by the church leaders for someone who is physically sick a good thing? As your pastor, I am saying a hearty amen. Amen. In this context of James 5, I believe, after a long period of study examining the Scriptures, I believe he's referring to a spiritual weakness, comma, comma, but we still want to pray for those who are sick physically. So the question is, will you have a humble heart? Will you be the one that says, I need help? I need to be healed from my spiritual weariness. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I need some people to stand with me. I I need that group of, of men, those band of brothers, those elders to literally help bear my burdens. I'm not manipulating. I'm truly suffering. I need you to help me in this. And the elders come alongside and they they put their 
They put their shoulder under you and put the arm around you, metaphorically that is, and they bear your burdens. That's the whole point of the unity of the gospel that the Bible speaks of. But you've got to be willing to humble yourself. Think about your home. Think about your ball team, your church, your business. Think about how more spiritually healthy, as you read these verses, it would be any of those institutions if people are willingly and humbly sharing their burdens. I mean, just think about that. Think about how much more spiritually healthy your home will be if you are sharing those heavy burdens of affliction with your church leaders. Just think about this. It will promote a oneness. There's no isolation. A lone ranger Christian is typically a dead one. That's why we must move beyond these surface relationships. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. Couldn't be better. Meanwhile, your car just got repossessed. You've been served divorce papers. Your world's falling apart. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. That doesn't help you and it doesn't help anyone else. There is something to be said when humility is on the scene. I know it's risky. I get it. It's risky to be humble as far as transparent and vulnerable. It's risky. I, I get that. It's hard to be transparent and vulnerable. Who wants to do that? Especially men, right? We don't gravitate towards this stuff. But we need to be. That's where the revival happens. Well, you sit in a room with a bunch of dudes, and if all you're hearing is crickets, it's going to be tough to get to the revival. But when you sit in a room of men, and they're confessing their sin, and they're struggling, and they're asking their brothers to pray, and they're calling on the leaders of the church to pray, watch out, Satan, here comes the revival. But it's going to take humility. That's why Andrew Murray said it like this. I love this. Andrew Murray he said, the greatest test of whether the holiness we profess to seek or to attain is truth and life will be whether it produces an increasing humility in us. In man, humility is the one thing needed to allow God's holiness to dwell in him and shine through him. The chief mark of a counterfeit holiness is lack of humility. The holiest will be the humblest end quote. So true. There is something about that. A prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you are a prideful person and you say, I know Jesus, and you're living in habitual pridefulness, you may claim to know Him. I can promise you this, He doesn't know you. And yet so often we See this played out as homes and churches get destroyed by the deceitfulness of sin. So many claim to know Christ, but the fruit they are producing exposes the reality that the root is not in Jesus, but rather a cheap substitute, a cheap imitation. Think about that, a cheap substitute, a cheap imitation. Remember, the fruit always exposes what the root is. The fruit always exposes the root. And as many professed believers get lured into the darkness of lukewarmness and apathy and indifference, this slow process of the baiting continues, and it's slow. 
Because it's so easy, church, to not recognize what's really taking place. As the claws of sin, the claws, picture that, the claws of sin begin to sink deeper and deeper into the the corners and the recesses of, of our hearts. And you know it's going to be one sorry day when after years and years of this darkness in a person's life, all while professing Jesus, all while going to church, all while dressing up, fooling everyone, phony baloney, one charade after another, it's going to be one sorry day when that's exposed. Because you look up, and even after all those years of stiff-neckedness, just think about that, after all those years of of being stiff-necked and defiant, rebellious, that we look up one day and we look in that mirror and we go, who is that person? We look in that mirror and go, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? Well, it was one compromise that led into compromise two, and then three, and before we know it, the dam is broken wide open. How did I get here? How did I destroy my family along the way? Well, the answer, it's called the deceitfulness of sin. It's called being outwitted by Satan, the schemer, the father of all lies. That's why church, here in closing, Romans 13, I want you to write this down. Romans 13, this is the rallying cry right here. This is the rallying cry for me and you today that as we live for Christ, that as we look at Romans 13 here, I pray this will be a crescendo to our gathering here that we will internalize this word like never before because, hey, if you are spiritually sick, we need to begin to pray. If you need to spiritually repent, we need to pray. If you need physical healing, we need to pray. We need to be a people. If you've committed sins, you need to repent from that and turn from that and no longer walk in that wickedness, but walk in truth and holiness. But Romans 13, 11 through 12 simply says this, as Paul writes there, he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, here we go, so then, let us do what, church? Cast off the works of darkness. Have nothing to do with the darkness. Rather, expose the darkness, the Word says, and put on, put on, clothe yourself with the armor of light. Do you see that, church? In these perilous days we're in, See so clearly. Cast off any darkness in your life. I'll do the same in mine. Let us put on, let us put on intentionally the armor of light. Don't bend, don't buckle, don't break. Oh, keep standing tall for the gospel. Do not grow weary while doing good. For in due season you will reap a great harvest if you do not lose heart. And that's the cry. And I pray that It'll be your cry as well as we cling to Jesus. Amen. Father, we come before you and as we humbly bow, as we humbly say, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name we give glory. God, in this time of response, I pray right now we would surrender all to you, not some, but everything.
Because Christ, you're enough. You're enough, Jesus. All the things of this world, they're fleeting, they're passing away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of my God will stand forever. God, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would You work right now? Would You stir? Would You do the work only You can do right now? Give us courage to yield everything to You, holding nothing back. If we're proud, God, I pray that You would give us courage to humble ourselves before You do it for us. So God, we confess, we're contrite, created us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with us right now. God, to You be the praise, to You be the glory as we meditate, as we give everything to You, and we reflect right now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.